Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Advocates who want to expand New York's decades-long bottle deposit law testified Monday at a hearing held by the state Senate and Assembly. They say adding more categories of containers would reduce the use of plastics and ease burdens on municipal landfills. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. New York's 1982 bottle law, which places a five-cent deposit fee on containers for carbonated soft drinks and beer, was expanded in 2009 to also include plastic water bottles. But environmental advocates say New York's law could be broader and could include wine bottles, liquor bottles, and other plastic beverage containers. My name is Erica Smitka, Deputy Director, League of Women Voters of New York State. Smitka, speaking before the hearing, holds up two bottles to demonstrate. So the one on my right hand is a just a, a like a soda bottle essentially um, and the one in my left hand is a juice bottle like a simply orange or a, you know just a, a general bottle iced tea lemonade anything you might find okay and what's the difference between them well there truly isn't much difference right they're both plastic bottles they both have similar plastic tops if you were looking at them as a layperson they, they look identical truly uh, the only difference is that one can be redeemed for five cents and the other cannot and goes pretty much straight to the landfill Mitka says the change could encourage more people to actually redeem their bottles, increasing the chances that they'll be recycled and reused properly. It could help increase New York State's redemption rate from 64% to 90%, which is a huge increase when we really only continue to create waste. Blair Horner with the New York Public Interest Research Group says the deposit amount could be higher too. He says that would incentivize people to not just throw the deposit bottles into the regular recycling or trash. A nickel in 1983 is not what a nickel is in 2023. Uh, If you just CPI adjusted it, it should be 15 cents. The advocates are asking Governor Kathy Hochul to include the proposal in her new budget plan due out in January. Hochul says she hasn't made any decision yet. I understand the, uh, the interest in it. We are still in the early stages of formulating our budget. We just had a meeting today to talk about what will go into our Our mid-year reports on the financials, we're talking about that and and how that would drive discussions on the financial side of our budget. But also there are many policy initiatives that we're still uh, pressure testing during this time before it's required to be um, announced. So uh, it's something we'll certainly look at. Opponents include the liquor industry and grocery store chains. They say it would increase their expenses for handling deposit containers. They also say wine and liquor bottles don't contribute to waste and recycling problems the way that plastic bottles do. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The first vending machine outside of New York City that dispenses Narcan used to reverse overdoses has been installed in Cernak Lake. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. New York Matters, based in Buffalo, plans to install 15 harm reduction vending machines across upstate and northern New York. The first was set up on October 10th in the lobby of the Saranac Lake Police Department. 
The machine dispenses at no cost Narcan and fentanyl and xylazine test strips. Saranac Lake Police Chief Darren Parati says the materials are available at any time, no questions asked. Somebody could come in, get whatever they want. They don't even have to speak to anyone. You can go for it, use it, do whatever you need to do, and you know you don't have to talk to anyone or answer any questions. The lobby, we have some resources and stuff out there, some pamphlets, some brochures that folks can take about fentanyl and about some you know resources that, uh, that are out there and available to them. Parati has noticed some hesitation to come into the lobby and use the machine, which he attributes to addiction stigma. The reality is that your hardened drug addicts and and whatnot are not going to be the only folks coming in to access this. Family members, loved ones that want to have this on hand because they know they have someone that is suffering from substance abuse disorder. It's a harm reduction resource to have out there. Three items can be obtained from the machine, Chief Parati notes, by inputting a code posted on the machine. It doesn't mean that you can't get more if you wanted. You would just have to enter the code again. But it gives you three options. So much like any vending machine that you get candy or soda out of, you know, there are itemized, numbered. So if you wanted Narcan, you know, you might press one. And then for your second item, you want a fentanyl test strip, you'll press, you know, two or three. And then same for the third item. It dispenses your items and you're on your way. The police department is partnering with the Alliance for Positive Health, which will stock and maintain the machine. Assistant Director of Program Services Vanessa Capon says informational material is dispensed with the Narcan about how to properly use it. We can also offer the trainings over the phone to individuals if they call and ask questions of, hey, I just want to make sure I understand how to use this. We'll go over it on the phone with them. We'll go out to them if they want to meet in person. We'll go out and show them how to use Narcan properly. But we want to make sure that it is accessible. That is so incredibly important, and we don't want it sitting in a closet at our office waiting for someone to come to us. We want to get it out into the community. Parati adds. And as officers, we're always available to train folks if they have questions about it. We do have some training devices in there. In a matter of minutes, we can instruct people on how to properly administer Narcan. And I think the important thing to note, too, is that Narcan won't harm you, and it really is going to have no effect on you if you are not under the influence of opioids. While Capon would like to see the harm reduction vending machines across the state, she also wants to make sure people get addiction treatment. I want to also make sure that vending machines don't become the new human. We want to make sure that the materials are accessible, but what's going to be more important is a staff member having conversations with the individual to provide those more wraparound services to them rather than just, here's your Narcan, see you later. In New York City, the first machine was installed in early June outside of a supportive housing facility. In addition to naloxone, it also supplies hygiene and safer sex kits. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week, I sat down with State University of New York Chancellor John King. 
We spoke about a number of issues, including how the university is approaching the use of artificial intelligence in learning. We've got faculty members across our institutions, particularly our, our four university centers, who are hard at work on these issues. We got more than $20 million grant from the National Science Foundation at the University of Buffalo to work on how you could use AI to help students with learning disabilities, how you might design educational tools that might help students. Uh, at UAlbany, through this partnership with IBM, uh, they're going to look at things like how could AI help to improve healthcare? What AI tools might be used, particularly for mental health? We've got folks who are looking at how can AI be used to improve advanced manufacturing? How can AI be used to predict weather patterns? So there's lots of potential for AI to have a positive impact, but we also have faculty and researchers who are working on what kinds of guardrails do we need to make sure that AI is used responsibly? How do we protect against, for example, racial bias in algorithms impacting AI? How do we make sure uh, that we protect against deep fakes so that our elections aren't disrupted by the manipulation? Cheating, uh, video cheating, images. cheating. As an adjunct at New right. Albany, <laughs> I say cheating. Well, we got to watch out for cheating, right? <laughs> sure. We got to think about how do we how do we refine our teaching methods? How do we create assignments where students are collaborating with each other, where they are producing real world products? Make it harder for uh, students to to simply use AI to substitute for their own learning. And so uh, we are also looking at those kinds of things. How do we change? Uh, teaching practices, and in some cases, how do we make sure that we're asking students in class, whether it's through writing or through class discussion, to demonstrate their knowledge rather than just relying on them to go off and uh, submit a document that may have been generated in part through AI. We're speaking with SUNY Chancellor John King. Well, back in May, Chancellor, you laid out your vision for SUNY. It included all students gaining, quote, real-world experience before graduation. And obviously, as a person who is an adjunct and works in the field, students tell me they appreciate that. They like a professor who's doing it and who can bring real world into the classroom. And also, we, for example, at WMC provide internships to many SUNY students who have come on staff here and have worked for years and years. So where are we in the process of trying to generate more real world experiences? Well, fortunately, we've been able to put some significant resources towards this. Uh, over the summer, we were able to set up research internships through a, a Chancellor's Research Excellence Fund across many of our uh, university center campuses. And then because of the, a very significant increase in state operating aid this past spring, we were able to dedicate $10 million across the system to supporting the growth of internships. And I really appreciate you leading for providing internships. We need more employers to step up to do that. And we have to make sure that internships are to the greatest extent possible paid because you don't want low-income students to be left out of the internship experience because they can't afford to do it. And so we're working with our campuses to think about how they can address unpaid or underpaid internships to, to add some compensation so that they are realistic opportunity for our students with financial struggles. That's State University of New York Chancellor John King. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. 
I'm David Gustino. New York State Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty recently announced $3 million in grant funding to support affordable housing in Columbia and Dutchess counties. As the Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby reports, the Democrat met with officials and housing advocates in Hudson. Speaking in front of a duplex apartment building, one of the city's first affordable housing units, Speaker Carl Hasty, a Bronx Democrat, says the affordable housing shortage is a national problem. The issue of people being able to have a, 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 a place to to live, a place to call home, and a place to take care of their families. Uh, we are indeed, you know, a crisis. And what we're doing here today is, is, is really, it's a small piece of what needs to really, uh, really be done. Hasty says he heard that firsthand. Recently, I was at a speaker's conference in Utah. Utah, of all places, where, you know, most of the population is, is really centered around within 50 miles of Salt Lake City. And the, and the speaker there actually said the two biggest problems that people in Utah are dealing with is affordable housing and climate. During the previous legislative session, majority lawmakers could not come to agreement on an affordable housing plan with Governor Kathy Hochul, a fellow Democrat. Between 2020 and 2022, the median home sale price in Columbia County rose by more than 20 percent. State Assemblywoman Dee Dee Barrett, a Democrat whose 106th district includes parts of Columbia and Dutchess counties, says the money will be divided among local organizations. One and a half million will be allocated to Columbia County Habitat for Humanity to support their great work creating affordable and energy efficient homes for first-time homeowners. And the other 101.5 million is for Dutchess County-based Hudson River Housing to continue the development of affordable, smart growth rental units. Al Valencia, executive director and CEO of Columbia County Habitat for Humanity, made reference to George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, saying those who do most of the working and living and dying deserve housing. At the beginning of this year, we announced a plan to accelerate our building capacity. In May, we broke ground on two homes in Philmont, and last week we announced the new building concept that uh, will bring efficient, sustainable, and low-cost homes to more of our communities. Krista Hines, president and CEO of Hudson River Housing, says housing is finally becoming part of the narrative and adds HRH is supporting those plans. We're also really excited to be bringing our homeownership counseling and our educational services here to Columbia County. We have lots of other exciting projects that we're working on, one in Pine Plains, um, in Millerton, in Amenia, in Millbrook, in Poughkeepsie, in Southern Duchess, just to name a few. Democratic Hudson Mayor Kamal Johnson says the impact stretches beyond just housing. For the last two years, we haven't been able to keep a football team on the field in our high school because we, haven't, we don't have enough students. Johnson says misconceptions surrounding affordable housing need to be cleared up. We're not realizing that these are the people who work in our schools, but these are the people who work in our grocery stores, who take care of us in the hospital. So as we work on a local level to put over 100 uh, new units of affordable housing over the next three years, it's amazing to hear that there's a state commitment as well. Johnson is a member of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, which promotes UBI, Universal Basic Income. Hudson's UBI program, a collaboration between former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang's Humanity Forward and Community Center The Spark of Hudson, began in September 2020 with monthly $500 payments for five years to 25 recipients. Anyone whose income was below $35,000 annually was able to apply. The program grew a year later to include 75 recipients, about 1% of the city's population. 
Johnson says the impacts are showing. Every single one of them has maintained the job that they've already had, as well as being able to um, show uh, basic uh, needs being met, like housing, food, um, shelter, being able to be there for their children and not work, you know, 100 jobs just to make ends meet. To address the shortage, Johnson is working on two redevelopments in the city. The school district owns the former John L. Edwards Elementary School. Um, I believe that is on the table and the ask is going to be affordable housing. I can't speak for the school district, um, but the city has a project down on Mill Street that is a 60 unit affordable housing um, project. That project we're going back and forth with the school district because there is a stipulation back from the 80s that says if that property is developed to anything that is not a park, we basically need uh, the permission of the school district. Michelle Tulo is Hudson's housing justice director. We're going to be constructing um, affordable uh, rental units in Hudson, um, about probably 90 of those, and then also doing two new home ownership opportunities. A new report from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress entitled Out of Reach found the average single worker cannot comfortably afford a one-bedroom apartment in any of the region's nine counties and median home prices are more than $100,000 higher than the mortgage a typical family would qualify for. Pattern President and CEO Adam Bosch says people aren't graduating from rentals to ownership and that's why 97 of the Hudson Valley's 120 school districts shrank this year, leading to broader economic effects. If you're not going to build actively the housing that's needed by the workers, then the work that they do is going to start to disappear. The diner's going to close, the dry cleaner's going to close, there's going to be fewer grocery stores. You know, the restaurants that we love to go to are going to shrink in number. You'd, if you don't want to see that, you got to understand that the ability to have the workers at those places is directly connected to having the housing that those workers need. Otherwise, we're shot. We're just going to continue to hollow out. The housing built by Habitat for Humanity will be passive, meaning its energy efficiency should cap fuel bills below 10% of a person's income. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Alexander Babby. <laughs>
room and this entire community. Central Hudson maintains the majority of its billing errors have been cleared up, although local lawmakers say they are still receiving complaints from constituents. Earlier this year, the utility agreed to hire an independent monitor to review whether efforts to fix its new billing system have been effective. As for the rate hike, Central Hudson spokesman Joe Jenkins says the utility needs to raise prices in order to replace its aging infrastructure and comply with New York's new climate laws. Jenkins says about 20 percent of the utility's infrastructure has passed its useful life, all while the company is also trying to prepare for a switch from bi-monthly to monthly meter readings and grow its workforce. We've all seen that uh, severe weather has become more frequent in the Hudson Valley. And as, as a result, we've had to respond to more of that severe weather. And that means providing personnel and resources to address these weather events. That includes mutual aid and uh, contract line workers. That's an explanation that probably won't fly with the customers at the public hearing, like Kimberly Ashcraft. Take a loan if you need money. As consumers, we need money, we mortgage our homes, we take loans, you need money, don't take it from your customers, and get a mortgage like every other person and every other business does. Central Hudson's net income for 2022 was $78 million, according to an annual report. Jenkins says those earnings were reinvested into the utility's infrastructure, along with additional investments from its Canadian parent company, Fortis. Jenkins adds Central Hudson has not provided dividend payments from these earnings to Fortis or to shareholders for, quote, several years. Fortis's net worth is over $19 billion as of October 2023. When it comes to calculating a utility bill, Jenkins explains there are three main components. The supply price, or the cost of the energy itself. The delivery price, meaning the cost of the utility infrastructure that gets that power to your home, and taxes. Jenkins says the supply price fluctuates with the energy market, and New York was one of the first states to deregulate its energy market, so residents have a little more choice in where they buy their energy, be it from a power plant or a solar program. Jenkins acknowledges this price has swung wildly over the past few years, but he maintains Central Hudson doesn't see a dime of it. Central Hudson doesn't significantly generate its own power. Rather, it buys electricity and gas from other providers and passes that cost on to customers. How Central Hudson makes its money, then, is a little more complicated, but it's tied to that delivery price. Profit for utility companies essentially does is derived from those delivery charges, but uh, you know, our profit is really based off of the return on equity we get for the investments we put into the system. So we are, uh, you know, motivated and inclined to continue to make investments and improvements on our system so that we can provide safer and more reliable service to our customers. The PSC last approved a rate plan for Central Hudson in 2021, which set a net increase in delivery rate for electric and gas over the course of three years. Drinken says the current delivery rate sits at just over 10 cents per kilowatt hour for the typical electric customer. But delivery is not something customers can shop around on. Michelle Bash owns the Warehouse Pub and Grill in Newburgh with her husband, David Brown. She says her residential electric bill has nearly doubled since 2020, and the restaurant's monthly electric bill has gone from a peak of $1,500 to $2,000 to an average of $3,500. Bash says she's tried signing up for clean energy programs to lower her energy bill, but she feels it doesn't matter if she's stuck with Central Hudson's power and gas lines in the end. I sell burgers. Real simple American fare. If I were to go up 30% on my hamburgers, you could come in and say, ah, it's so good, I don't mind. But you could also say, what, are you crazy? <laughs> and go to the next place and have a burger. We do not have that choice. 
Despite impassioned pleas from the likes of Ed Kennedy, there are no serious efforts to break up New York's utilities. In response to Central Hudson's billing errors, however, the state legislature sent a bill to Governor Kathy Hochul's desk that would ban utilities from back-billing customers if they are more than two months late in delivering an invoice. State Assemblyman Jonathan Jacobson of the 104th District has also sponsored legislation with State Senator Michelle Hinchy that would ban utilities from relying on estimated billing. Multiple lawmakers were on hand at the hearing to oppose the rate hike, including Jacobson, State Senator Rob Rollison, and State Senator James Scoopus. Scoopus, a Democrat from the 42nd District, called the request insulting, adding that he is still receiving complaints of billing mishaps from constituents. While he likened the PSC's rate case process to a game, where utilities often request exorbitant hikes to settle for the number they really want, his message to the PSC was simple. Don't play. A knockdown rate hike no one's going to be celebrating. No elected official, no one in the public. Oh, thank you, Public Service Commission, for only limiting it to X. That's right. They no deserve rate. not one red cent of a rate hike. Many at the hearing called on the PSC to demand a rate decrease for customers' pain and suffering. Alexis Danzig of Socrates says she appealed to the PSC in June, when over the course of three months she received back-to-back bills from Central Hudson totaling $160, $1,500, and then $116. She says the PSC ultimately sent her a typo-written letter that mistakenly referred to Central Hudson as National Grid before telling her to pay up. Even Newburgh Mayor Torrance Harvey made headlines last year when he received an erroneous bill totaling more than $700,000. For my my home, which is a ranch house, three-bedroom house, okay, on a third of an acre in the city of Newburgh. Almost put me in cardiac arrest, and that's the guy's (laughs) honest truth. I almost had a heart attack. Billing issues aside, many noted that Hudson Valley residents are feeling the squeeze amid high inflation. Newburgh resident Leilani Johnson says as a disabled person living on a fixed income, she's already struggling to get by. If the PSC were to approve a rate hike, she wonders whether customers will be forced to choose between paying rent and paying their utility bill. We want to know what's going to happen for real and, and not just a lot of, of lip service because this is, this is very serious. This is really life and death. Because if you can't pay your bills and you can't, you have nowhere to, like, what happens? The PSC says the rate case is still in its early days. Stakeholders can submit comments on the PSC's website, and there's a link at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2343. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.